48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. The government prepares to dish out billions of dollars in relief for businesses forced to close in the pandemic. Customers of a hair salon are the latest to be hit with a COVID-19 testing mandate. And experts rush to talk up the safety of mainland-made coronavirus vaccines. The government has pledged to give another $5.5 billion to business sectors most affected by social distancing measures. The Chief Secretary, Matthew Jung, says businesses that were forced to close amid the latest wave of infections will be the focus of the aid package. Damon Pang reports. Matthew Jung says many sectors are suffering particularly badly at the moment because the run-up to Christmas is traditionally the peak trading season. But with government-mandated closures for many businesses deemed to pose the greatest risk to public health, the festive season has become a grim struggle for survival. We are really talking about a very focused, targeted approach. As gyms, beauty parlor, for example, schools also closed as well. And then like catering industry, in other words, those we ordered them to close or affected by social distancing measures and so on. The bulk of the money, some $3.4 billion, will be earmarked for the catering industry after restaurants were ordered to stop serving dine-in customers after 6 in the evening. Depending on the size of their premises, some 17,000 catering outlets can get a one-off subsidy of between $100,000 to $500,000. Bars, nightclubs and karaoke launches that have been ordered to close again will receive $50,000, while kindergartens and private schools will get between $60,000 and $160,000, and gyms $100,000. Mr Jung says the latest aid package is the best the government can do, given its limited resources. We've already spent $300 billion, a lot of money there, in terms of fighting the epidemic and easing the pressure on the community and helping industries as well. So we are facing a very difficult fiscal position that we've got to be prudent, but at the same time, we've got to be compassionate. I think we've got the right balance struck here. The chief secretary said Lechko's finance committee will meet on Monday to vet the funding application, and he hopes businesses will be able to receive the money next month. On top of the $5.5 billion, the government will also ask LegCo to approve another $830 million to be set aside as contingency funds. Health officials have issued a mandatory testing notice for anyone who's visited a hair salon and spa on Wellington Street in Central since December the 8th. The Centre for Health Protection says that four members of staff and one customer at Glow Hong Kong have been confirmed with the virus. The CHP's Dr. Chuan Shukwan said 30 members of staff had been quarantined. We found that uh, one of the customer has been tested positive, so we are worried that uh, there may be other transmission in the salon uh, among the uh, customers of the salon. That's why we are asking them to come forward for compulsory testing to make sure they are not infected. Officials reported 96 new coronavirus cases today. Of these, 90 were local. 26 of those cases had no clear source. A prominent microbiologist, Hopak Leung, says he's not worried about the safety of a COVID-19 vaccine developed on the mainland as long as it's approved by health authorities there. The first batch of a million doses from Sinovac is expected to arrive in Hong Kong next month should the vaccine pass late-stage clinical tests. Here's Timmy Sung. 
Dr. Ho from the University of Hong Kong told an RTHK program that since the fourth wave of infection started, around 170 patients have been in a serious condition, with around 20 related deaths. Even if the vaccines will cause serious side effects, which I believe there will be, they won't be common, he said. He pointed out that people in high-risk groups need to consider the possibility of becoming seriously sick or even deaf if they aren't immune to the coronavirus. When there's comprehensive clinical data in January, I think people who are aged 50 and above, regardless if you have chronic diseases, should consider getting vaccinated, he said. Dr. Ho added that no one knows if the two other vaccines developed in Europe with brand new technologies could cause side effects, as only a small number of people were involved with the clinical trials. He pointed out that the technology adopted by the mainland vaccine manufacturer, on the other hand, has been widely used in other vaccines. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is just coming up to five minutes past 11. A nine-month investigation by the Ombudsman has found no evidence that masks made for government departments were being systematically resold in the private sector, following reports earlier this year that the masks were misused by staff. Candice Wong reports. The Ombudsman, Winnie Chiu, acknowledged that some CSI masks have been leaked to the open market, but insisted these were isolated cases involving expired masks. The masks are made by prisoners and were given to officials, civil servants and police officers. Some had also been sold to social welfare organisations previously. They came under the spotlight as people in Hong Kong scrambled for face masks at the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020, with reports saying CSI masks were sold in local shops. But Ms Chu suggested that no particular government departments or offices be held responsible. Our current direct investigation is targeting on investigating any loophole in the system. We're not looking at individual person's officer's conduct. Still, Ms Chu said government departments should improve how they record the storage and distribution of masks, noting there had been no such measures prior to the pandemic. The World Health Organization says a team of 10 international experts has been given the go-ahead to travel to China next month to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Beijing has been reluctant to allow an independent investigation and it's taken several months of negotiations to agree strict terms of reference for the research. The experts will try to identify the first human cases and the source of infection. No WHO scientist has been allowed to visit Wuhan, where the virus was first detected last year since February. Dr Peter Daschak is president of EcoHealth Alliance and part of the WHO team. There's pretty good evidence that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, is related to a group of bat-origin viruses and that there's a huge diversity of those um, in Southeast Asia and China. So the connection between a wildlife reservoir and the first human cases is the big black box that we're going to try and look into. You know, did that involve people moving around China who were infected prior to the big outbreak? Did that involve other animal hosts, you know, amplifier hosts in wildlife markets or other aspects? Dr. Daschak is confident that politics won't stand in the way of scientists' search for the truth. There's a big geopolitical issue around the origins, which is really unfortunate. I, mean, I think that if you put two groups of scientists together um, and, and let them 
run free and under, try and understand the origins of an outbreak, they will be seeking the truth. Um, and so, that's what scientists do. And I think that's what we've got to try and push and foster here and avoid the politics. I'm confident we're going to um, have real cooperation. We've already seen that on some of the uh, teleconferences we've been doing with our Chinese colleagues. They've brought the right people into the team. They've got experts in animal origin diseases, in epidemiology, people who are involved in the early outbreak, and people who know um, where there are samples, perhaps, or where there are other tests that can be done. I I I'm pretty confident about that. The MTR has warned that it will stop East Rail services between Hungham and Mongkok East for 10 Sundays next year as track laying and signalling works takes place for the new shot into Central Link. The first closures will be on January the 10th and February the 21st, with the rest to follow between April and October. James Chow of the MTR's construction division says the two hours a day during which trains aren't operating doesn't give enough time. These work are required to be carried out in sequence. So uh, between uh, the Sunday closure, uh, we have to do a bit of uh, uh, adjustment and testing uh, before we can proceed to the next uh, Sunday uh, uh, work. And that's why uh, we have selected 10 Sunday uh, in the next uh, 10 months, uh, averaging maybe one Sunday per month to do this uh, work uh, rather than do it in, uh, in 10 uh, consecutive uh, Sunday. The Legislative Council has held an unprecedented virtual meeting amid the coronavirus pandemic, potentially paving the way for more formal sessions to be held online. Damon Pang reports. LegCo's housing panel meeting was considered an informal session because it didn't involve any voting. Lawmakers locked on to the online session via Zoom, while the public could watch on LegCo's YouTube channel. Panel Chair Tommy Cheung hosted the session from the council building, while Housing Minister Frank Chen attended the online session from his own office. Unlike regular sessions, the meeting didn't provide English or Mandarin simultaneous interpretations. One of those who took part, Eunice Yong from the New People's Party, says she found the arrangement convenient. I think it's a trend for us to attend virtual meetings. As in the same time, I'm attending two meetings. So actually, it's better for us to arrange our time. Pacific Passion lawmaker Cheng Chong Tai refused to join the session, saying he thinks virtual meetings give the public a bad impression about LegCo's parliamentary standards. I think the public, they don't understand or they can't distinguish what kind of so-called formal or informal meetings we are talking about. The concept is not clear. He added that he's concerned about potential legal problems that could arise from these virtual sessions if the arrangement is extended to other formal meetings. LegCo President Andrew Leung, for his part, earlier said he's directed the Secretariat to study legal and procedural issues if the Council is to also hold formal sessions online. A senior U.S. military commander, Admiral Phil Davidson, has accused China of not honouring its agreements after it failed to attend a virtual meeting on maritime safety. The BBC's Michael Bristow has more details. This might seem like a small event, an annual meeting between the militaries of China and the United States, but actually it's another indication of the poor relationship that exists between these two countries. This particular forum is supposed to iron out any problems between the two militaries, set out a, a code of conduct if there are any problems between them, and talk about any potential flashpoints and any incidents that have taken place in the past. The Americans seem pretty annoyed about the Chinese no-show. They don't appear to have received any pre-warning. 
Beijing has described the Admiral's comments as irresponsible, but offered no explanation as to why it didn't attend the meeting. Several European leaders have been forced to self-isolate after coming into contact with the French President Emmanuel Macron, who's tested positive for coronavirus. The BBC's Lucy Williamson reports from Paris. Staff at the Elysee Palace told the BBC that Mr Macron was feeling well, despite showing early symptoms of Covid. He's cancelled a trip to Lebanon next week and will work remotely through his seven-day isolation. The president's busy diary is now being pored over to determine who else may have been infected. The Spanish Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, and the head of the EU Council, Charles Michel, have already confirmed they are self-isolating after having lunch with him this week. The French Prime Minister and the head of the National Assembly here are doing the same. At his end-of-year news conference, Vladimir Putin has been asked about his government's response to the pandemic. Journalists and members of the public asked about a shortage of supplies of a Russian-made vaccine. Mr Putin said the vaccine was more than 95% effective, but would take time to produce. He said he intended to have the jab. The specialists are saying that the vaccines that are being provided right now are being targeted to citizens of a certain age range. And I have not yet reached that age. I am a very law-abiding citizen and I will listen to the recommendations of our specialists. But as of now, I wasn't vaccinated with this vaccine, but I will do for sure, as soon as it is available. To sport and football's global lawmakers have approved trials for concussion substitutes from January for any league that wants them. The new rule means that permanent substitutions can be made if a player suffers a head injury, even if all the replacements have already been used. To avoid potential abuse of the rule, opposition teams will also be able to make a change at the same time. The English Premier League is thought to be in favour of the new law, but any change in protocol will be subject to a vote by clubs. The former Tottenham and Watford defender Raymond Vega says the ruling should be welcomed. This issue has been going on for for years, let's call it that. And they're not just only in football, you know, I think rugby in this case is also a huge physical, or even more than actually uh, in football in this case, has also that kind of issues, you know. So I think it's a it's it's important to protect the players, you know, and then and in this case they they really wake up and they want to do something about it. And I'm very happy about it. A reminder of our top stories tonight. The government prepares to dish out billions of dollars in relief for businesses forced to close in the pandemic. Customers of a hair salon in Central are the latest people to be hit with a COVID-19 testing mandate. And health experts rush to talk up the safety of coronavirus vaccines that have been developed on the mainland. The news from RTHK. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. A Chinese space capsule has landed in Inner Mongolia carrying the first pieces of moon rock to be returned to Earth in four decades. The national flag was planted near the capsule after it was located. Dr Seth Shostak is a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in California whose mission is to explore the origin and nature of life in the universe. He spoke to the BBC's James Copnall about the significance of the Chinese mission. Well, you know, the moon still has a lot of uh, mystery about it. I mean, 
you know, we didn't know where the moon came from. You might say, well, uh, come on, the moon's just there. But the facts are that if you look at the nearby planets like Venus or Mercury or Mars, they don't really have moons. Yeah, Mars has a couple of moons. You could walk around in an afternoon. But the Earth has this really big moon. So how did that happen? And, uh, you know, we think it happened because of a big fender bender, a big collision that the Earth underwent more than four billion years ago was something about the size of Mars. But in any case, bringing this rock back has a big science payoff, but it has, you know, geopolitical payoff too. Yeah, now that takes me nicely on to my next question, because if you look at the photos of the landing, they got that Chinese flag right next to it pretty quickly, didn't they? Yeah, they they did. Yes, they, they carefully left that flag up there. Why? Oh, you're talking about the one the one in Mongolia. Yeah, they had a flag there too. But they left one on the moon as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so why? What does it what does it give a country then this uh this space race landing on the moon or or, or whatever else um major nations do heading out into space? Well, look, it's certainly a demonstration of technical expertise. I mean, the Soviet Union you know, its its space capability was, I don't know, that was the jewel in the crown, really. It showed that this was a serious country with real technical ability. Now, the fact that the rest of the economy wasn't quite up to that level, all right, that was, but at least you could look at the successes in space. I think China's trying to do the same thing. And China tends to pick out uh, activities that it thinks will improve it in the long improve its standing if you will in the world in the long term for example they're trying to you know uh, dominate the pharmaceutical industry well okay space is another place but there's a, there's an even longer term uh aspect to this that once you keep in mind that that is that the moon even aside from the raw materials aside from what you're going to learn about the the origin of the moon it is in fact the jumping off place it is the bridgehead to the rest of space. If you can get a spacecraft to the moon, you know, taking it on to Mars is a much easier task. Do people concerned with, with, with space in the US wake up today slightly more concerned than they were the previous day now that China has done this? Well, I haven't spoken to too many about that yet, but I can't imagine that they don't. I'm sure they do. On the other hand, you could be kind of cynical. And, James, I'm not that cynical. But if you were... This you know, is not a journalist. Say, I'm cynical. Are you cynical? Well, I, I, you know, that probably can be cured. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but the point is that actually this may be the best thing for the people in the space biz in the U.S. to have competition. Why did we get to the moon first? Well, it wasn't because we wanted to find out more about the origin of the moon and bring back 800 pounds of rock. It was because the Soviets were going to get there first if we didn't. Now having China as a competitor in space, that may be the best thing that the U.S. space program could have. The president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, has said that he is not scared to face the International Criminal Court. The ICC's chief prosecutor released a report this week stating that it has reasonable grounds to believe that crimes against humanity have been committed during Mr Duterte's war on drugs. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Manila correspondent, Alan Robles, for more details on how the president has responded to the ICC report. Well, uh, of course, uh, President Duterte has reacted with his usual charming invective his usual bluster and deranged crude ranting. In the past, he called Bensuda that black woman. 
and he vowed to hurl a grenade at the ICC. Now, last night, late last night, when he held this briefing about the status of the COVID, he took the time out to talk about this case. That's where he said he was not afraid and that he's ready to go to jail if that is his destiny. And he called a senator who had helped bring about the case against him. Uh, what do you call that? A, a crude Tagalog word for dog excrement. Mm. Uh, so he's coming out fighting. Um, what's he actually accused of? Well, uh, this whole thing arose because a Filipino lawyer in 2017 filed a case at the International Criminal Court where he said that uh, Duterte and several of his officials could be accused of committing crimes against humanity. Now, the International Court's prosecutor then announced it would look into it. This provoked fury in the Duterte government, and it pulled out of the ICC in 2018. But uh, nonetheless, the, what the prosecutor said this week is that, uh, well, we've studied the matter, and yes, it does seem, it, it, we believe that the Duterte's uh, war on drugs was responsible for crimes against humanity that killed thousands of Filipinos. At this point, it's still a long way from an actual trial, but the possibility exists. So the prosecutor said that by early next year, it could decide whether to conduct an investigation. If it does, that investigation could lead to a trial of Duterte. And if it does? Uh, well, if, if it does and if he's convicted, he goes to jail in the Netherlands. And it's happened to a lot of uh, world figures, uh, many of them from Africa, or most of them from Africa. The last one, I think, was sentenced to 30 years in jail. Uh, so this is not something that's idle. It's, it all arises out of this uh, agreement that many countries signed in Rome uh, uh, while setting up the International Criminal Court. So signatories are bound to observe this. And uh, if Duterte shows up in any of their countries, they have the option of arresting him. In terms of, uh, you know, the crimes that he's allegedly committed, this is to do with the war on drugs? Yes. The government, it's, it's really not a matter of argument anymore. The government has killed thousands of Filipinos in its war on drugs. It admits it so itself. Now, the Philippine police, if you believe them, says that it's killed about 5,000 quote-unquote drug criminals. Human rights groups, including the Philippine government's own Human Rights Commission, say the figure could actually be 27,000. And this includes not just drug suspects, but children, elderly women, just about anybody. Latest U.S. figures on the spread of the coronavirus have set grim new records with more than 3,700 deaths recorded in a single day. The first Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines are now being administered, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration will discuss the Moderna vaccine later today, but it will be months before enough people are immunised. The ongoing vaccination programme, though, is facing strong opposition in the U.S., and, as the BBC's Aline McBool reports from Washington, that mistrust appears highest among African Americans. This week, the first American to be vaccinated against the coronavirus in front of the cameras was a black nurse from New York. The jab administered by a black doctor. And that was no accident. It pointed to an awareness that mistrust in the vaccine is at its highest among some of those who've been affected by the virus the most, African-Americans. The first thing you might want to say 
to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're going to take was developed by an African-American woman. America's foremost infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has been trying to do his bit to convince people. But many aren't buying it. It's a long time coming, yes indeed. Hey, here we are. Kimon Freeman is a Washington, D.C. radio personality and has been vocal about his intention not to take the vaccine. If anything, the efforts focused on black people are making him all the more skeptical. It does not ring true when you say that you want to move us to the front of the line because we've been disproportionately affected by this. I lost a cousin to um, COVID. I have friends who have lost loved ones to COVID, so I'm not immune to the loss. If there is a chance that a vaccine that has been approved not just here but in other countries will stop you and others losing relatives, isn't that something? Again, I, I encourage people to make a decision for themselves. If you're asking me personally, I'm not taking the coronavirus vaccine. I don't think it has reached the level of confidence for me to overlook the history and the apprehensiveness of my community's concerns with uh, vaccines. What does that mean? That means that America doesn't have a, a great track record in the black community of being concerned about our health and well-being. The massive disparity in coronavirus deaths where black Americans have died at nearly three times the rate of white Americans has exacerbated mistrust. But it's mistrust that was already deep-rooted. Well, today, America does remember the hundreds of men used in research without their knowledge. One of the most shameful chapters in American medical history was a syphilis study carried out on hundreds of poor black men in Tuskegee, Alabama, that only came to an end after 40 years in the 1970s. Later, while President Bill Clinton formally addressed the issue. What the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry. The Bee Gees are one of the most successful groups of all time. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and everyone from Elvis Presley to Al Green and Dolly Parton has covered their songs. At the height of disco in 1978, seven of that year's US number one signals were written by them. But along with their huge success, there was also serious infighting, escalating drug problems and premature deaths. All this is explored in a new feature-length documentary, the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, released this week. The only surviving brother, Barry Gibb, speaks to the BBC's Colin Patterson. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome the Bee Gees? The most exciting sound in the world. How Can You Mend a Broken Heart looks at all aspects of the Bee Gees, growing up in Manchester, moving to Australia and having their first number one in 1967. the phenomenon that was Saturday Night Fever. Speaking from his home studio in Miami, the surviving BG, Barry Gibb, tried to explain what it was like to have that level of fame. Well, you don't really deal with it. It's just like you're in the eye of a storm. Everyone around you is crazy. It got to the point where I, I couldn't answer the phone. People were climbing over the walls. Actually, that still happens. <laughs> Fame may have helped Barry have a rather nice house, but the documentary also deals with the lows. I can't honestly come to terms with the fact that they're not here anymore. The deaths of his three younger brothers, fellow Bee Gees, Morris and Robin, and Andy. 
a solo star who was only 30 when his lifestyle took its toll. We all had our demons. We all had our um, issues between each other. Maybe being the eldest brother made me feel that I had responsibility to watch out for my three brothers. But these days, I come to realize that they probably didn't want that. Andy, in the end, I think felt that I was getting credit for what he was doing. And that's what messes you up. This obsession with credit that I don't actually have. How about the Bee Gees? Disco sex! Disco sex! There is also a focus on the disco backlash of 1979, which culminated with disco records being blown up on the field before a Chicago White Sox baseball match. The word disco. How do you feel about that word now? It's a word, and I don't understand how it became more than a word. I don't care if someone likes a song or not, but when the system you work in, your industry, decides that you're not relevant, even though you're having hit after hit, and they can censor you, I think that's wrong. So at the start of the 80s, they began writing for other people. Listen, I, I could not be happier that the music has survived, regardless of any of us. But I'm not ready to give up on, on making records and writing songs. And in a few years, maybe. The closer I get to 80. <laughs> in fact, he has a new country album out in January. And following the success of Rocketman and Bohemian Rhapsody, Steven Spielberg is on board for a Bee Gees film. Saturday Night Fever, yes. Festive Fever, no. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. To prevent the spread of disease, make sure all drainage traps contain water. Pour half a litre of water into each drain outlet every week. Check sinks, baths, toilets, and floor drain outlets regularly. If drainage pipes are leaking or blocked, or drain outlets emit a foul smell, arrange prompt inspection and repair by a qualified person. Don't alter drains and pipes on your own. Visit chp.gov.hk for details. Radio 3 Weather. A look at the weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow. Mainly cloudy and rather cool tomorrow morning. Minimum temperature will be around 14 degrees in town. And it's going to be a couple of degrees lower over those chilly new territories. Dry with sunny intervals during the day. Maximum temperature should be around 18 degrees. And winds will be moderate north to northeasterlies. The outlook... Temperatures will fall again over the weekend and on the winter solstice with morning temperatures of around 12 or 13 degrees in town. And yes, it'll be a bit cooler over the new territories too. Currently, the air quality health index here in Hong Kong is now low to moderate. The readings are 3 and 4 at the observatory. Air temperature is 15 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity stands at 70%. Radio 3
started for the second part of the show that was Simon and Garfunkel Scarborough Fair Cantile, I'm Simon Wilson sitting in for Uncle Ray, the world's most durable DJ, I'll be back with you in 2021, in the meantime playing assorted ballads and easy listening through till one if there's something you'd like to hear 233 is the number